and that a lot of kids are feeling anxious. And it's so important for her to come to school because if she doesn't go to school, it's just going to reinforce in her brain that school is this awful, terrible place. And the fact that she comes here every day is the best thing to do to show worry, to kind of get lost and that it's okay. And that worry tricks us and how to find those tricky, sticky thoughts and challenge them and then do the behavior that's going to be aligned with that thinking. Please welcome my guest today, Dr. Karen Baruch Feldman. When you've sold over 40,000 books, people pay attention. As a clinical child psychologist, she wrote The Grit Guide for Teens, which gained international attention. This book helps teens build perseverance, resilience, self-control, and stamina. Dr. Feldman has a new book launching just days away on March 31st, The Resilience Workbook for Kids. She's hosting a virtual book launch event for her new book, that will be like its very own professional development for adults who care about resilience in youth. She has an all-star lineup joined in launch, including the amazing Renee Jane, creator of Gozen Anxiety Relief for Children, and Dr. Robert Brooks, a renowned expert on themes of resilience, motivation, school climate, a positive work environment and family relationships, and many more guests. Dr. Feldman is a leader in cognitive behavioral therapy techniques helping children and adults cope with stress and worry, managing change, developing grit, resilience, and self-control. Visit her online at drbrugfeldman.com. She's trained hundreds of teachers, parents, children, and healthcare professionals giving workshops and lectures, and you're going to get an inside look at her expertise on this special episode. Please welcome Dr. Baruch Feldman. Welcome back to my podcast, Big Ideas and Small Windows. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Karen Feldman here, who I met in Boston in November. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but so much more about the great work she's done. Welcome, Dr. Feldman. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And yes, we were at the Learning in the Brain conference in Boston, and it was great being there because I'm used to going to conferences with you know educators who are pretty smart people, but these people were like way smarter. They were researchers and scientists and you. And I got to really pick your brain a bit as we went out and had dinner one night. Yeah, so I was super excited. Actually, I've spoken at the conference a bunch of times, but I was really excited about this conference because it all my favorite speakers and uh, topics were being featured. So it was a really good fit for me. Yeah, I definitely loved it too. I could have stayed for the whole week, let alone a weekend, but we got a lot out of it. It was fun. So you wrote the the Grit Guide for Teens, which did an awesome job in the market selling over 40,000 copies. Why do you think this book was so successful? So I wrote this book in 2017, so pre-COVID. And I think what I'm saying is true now, if not even more. I know that teachers and parents and even teens themselves know that this topic of grit, which is really defined by Angela Duckworth as having passion and perseverance for long-term goals is a really hard thing to have today for teens. It's hard to both be, have that kind of passion and have that purpose and be really connected to things. And what really teens will often say it's like it's really hard for them to do long-term things the world is sort of set up in a very short-term way everything is about immediate gratification so they haven't been practicing a lot of working towards 
doing things that in the long term will give them meaning and purpose. And that's really what grit is really about. It's like kind of being able to focus on in the long term, what's going to be valuable. On that note, you have a new book launching on March 31st. So it'll be right after this episode comes out or right when this episode comes out. It's called Mm -hmm. the Resilience Workbook for Kids. In order to increase resilience in young people, you talk about it starting with adults. I find that really interesting. What do you mean by that? Why do we start with adults? Yeah. So I feel passionate about that. Sometimes people ask me, what's the difference between resilience and grit? And so I define grit as having passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And, and, and resilience, there's, there's many different definitions, but I see resilience as really being able to cope with adversity. The number one factor is having what we call a charismatic adult, having an adult in your life who sees you, who supports you. And you get starts with adults in two ways. First of all, if the adults are in a place where they are feeling that they're not able to give to anybody, it's going to be impossible for them to give to others. And that also, as I said, the number one thing we can do in terms of building resilience is to put support in children's place and, and to make sure that we're not asking kids to do this alone, that, that in order to cope, they need somebody. It doesn't have to be a parent, but an educator. It can be a neighbor. It can be somebody from a club, but somebody in their life who really believes in them. Yeah, that, that re- reinforces to me that research that supports how instrumental a mentor is in you know anybody's life, but especially a child. And I just do a quick a sidebar on this. I, I saw a really cool study. You might know this one. It was in Hawaii and they followed these kids on the island of Kauai who about a third of them were identified as at risk, but about a third of them showed resilience. And mm-hmm. that resilience, you know what I'm talking about this study? Yeah, uh, that's like the original studies of resilience was starting with those those children that you're talking about in Hawaii is that they had these children who they really thought were going to be at risk and wound up what really, really helped them was having um, this kind of supportive support yeah. in their lives. It really is, is so critical. And I think it's so important. I know that probably you have a lot of educators that are going to be listening to this. And I know that today, like with everything with COVID, it can feel like really overwhelming and it can feel like, how am I making a difference? But like, again, as educators, even these micro moments can make such a difference in a child's life. Um, so I think that that's such an important part of resilience. Yeah. And I think, so like you said, that was one of the historically referenced, uh, studies and there's been so many that have reinforced that over time, which just keeps bringing us back to this importance of protective factors that help kids in spite of their trauma or their challenges to demonstrate that post-traumatic growth, which is, which is fantastic that you show that with the resilience research you did. So you have a launch coming up with that March 31 date. And I, I can't wait to, I have to be there and I have to hear about it. What can we expect at that launch? I'm looking at all these great names that you share (laughs) with me. Tell me a little bit about this. For the book launch, obviously I want to talk about the book, but I also, you know, see it as this great opportunity to really learn about resilience from me and from my co-writer, Rebecca Comizio, and from some of the big names in the field. So Dr. Robert Brooks, who is from Harvard and has written a great deal about resilience. He is also one of the big people who speaks about this charismatic adult and the importance of charismatic adults and talks about parenting and how we can raise resilient kids. He'll be there. And Ken Ginsberg, 
who was also at Learning in the Brain when we were there and is from Philly and also is a pediatrician who sees a tremendous amount of teens who are struggling and he talks about resilience. He will be there as well. And then Rini Jane goes in and she is so creative and she combines these like short uh, video clips and with ideas around anger management and resilience and reducing anxiety and OCD. So hopefully we're going to hear from us about what's in the book and what we were hoping to accomplish. And obviously we'll hear a little bit also from these really great thinkers and researchers in the field as well. Yeah, that's, a, that's an all-star lineup. Uh, I'm going to link to that in the show notes so that my fans can check that out because I think it's well worth hearing a lot about both the book and what all those great minds have to offer. And I also think like, I think what really is unique about, about the Grit Guide for Teens and the Resilience Workbook for Kids, and I think that's why also I ha- was able to get really some really great endorsements. I mean, all those people were endorsers for me for the book, is that there's a lot out there for parents and for educators or for the grown-ups about how to help kids. But there's not that much out. When I wrote The Grit Guide for Teens, first of all, grit was a much newer concept. And so what my purpose in writing that book was for teens themselves to have something to kind of work through this and to teach them the concepts and then work through those concepts. And the same thing about resilience is that I know that Bob has said to me, like, for a really long time, he would talk to parents and educators about what they do, but they would say, okay, now what should I do with my kid? And he'd be like, I don't know, there's nothing really out there. And now he's like really excited. And I think even Ken is also really excited that there's now something that the kids can actually engage with. So to build it as a scale. And that's another like uh, way I think about these things is that I see resilience and grit. And I think, you know, the research shows that kids are more naturally, some kids are more naturally gritty and some kids are more naturally resilient, but you can teach it as a skill, just like some kids are better at reading and some kids are writing and math. You don't just say, okay, forget about that kid. He's not good at it. We're not going to grow it. And so that's the way I sort of approach this is to see it as a skill and how do we um, break those skills down and then teach them back up so that kids and teens in the Grit Guide for Teen um, are able to become more skillful. Yeah, the, to me, that sounds like it's very empowering for kids. Like it gives them back some of that control, which is probably one of the things they feel like they don't have when they're dealing with some of their challenges. Yeah. For resilience, control and feeling that they have ownership is a very big part of resilience. It's one of the key factors about whether or not you feel resilient or not is how much you feel in control of what's happening to you. Again, when stress happens, it can feel very overwhelming. But if children can figure out what part they control and how they can feel more competent in that situation, those are huge factors. So control, feeling competent, and then back to that, having that social relationships. Those are some of the real key concepts that, again, research bears out is really helpful in building resilience, as well as seeing challenges as opportunities. So these are very, very challenging times. And I'm also a person that tries to stay away from what we call toxic positivity. So I'm not trying to silver line this or try to flip it around, but I do think there's always an opportunity to try to see like within this, what is the opportunity? And if we can kind of have kids have that mindset that within a challenge, there's always a place to learn and to grow. I think that that's really, really helpful. 
Yeah. So that's, that sounds like it's all part of what, as you call it, nurturing resilience. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just even today in my school, there was a kid who said something inappropriate during group and he knew he said something inappropriate during group. And then he's like, are you going to call my mother? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to call your mom. And the reason why I'm calling your mom is because you're in fifth grade and soon you're going to go to the middle school. And it's my job to help you to make better choices. And I see your mom as a partner. I'm not calling her to get you into trouble, but for you to learn and to make better choices. And I think by me calling her, we're going to work together to help you to make better choices. You're not in trouble. I want you to kind of like learn for this and then really make sure that you don't do that again. And I, when I spoke to his mom, I obviously told her the inappropriate thing he said. And I also said, I was really impressed by the way he said he was sorry and he wasn't defensive. And of course he said, please don't call my mother. But when I told him I had to call your mother, he, he understood that we were going to see it as a partnership. So that is a good example of, again, I wouldn't wish this for him, but if he can learn this in my mind in fifth grade, that we don't say these inappropriate things, that will be almost like a blessing in disguise rather than him learn those things as he gets older and the stakes get higher. Right. It's, it's, it's like a boot camp, if you will, that he can learn <laughs> in, right? Where it's a little safer ground. And how does that tie into your concepts about grit and belonging? You know, social emotional learning is such a hot topic. There are so many things you can focus on. We have like a wellness club and we work on in the wellness club, kindness, flexibility and grit. Those are our things that we're working about. But as a whole school, we wanted to come around one um, term or one concept that we thought we could really focus on. And again, if we did three, we thought it would just get sort of watered down. So as a, a building and as a community, we focused on belonging, having that sense of community. Because again, going back to that whole idea that I said about what's the number one factor of resilience is feeling that support. And so I really believe, and it's not just me that believes, but again, the research bears this out, that if you don't feel like you have a sense of belonging, the rest of the stuff is just going to crumble. Like, so the kids just need to feel like that this is their home, that this is the place that they belong. I've seen it over and over again when kids feel isolated or lonely, they get angry and they're like, I'm upset, then everyone else is going to get upset around here. So I think that that's so pivotal is to try to really actively figure out on a classroom level, on a building level, culturally, what we're seeing around ourselves in the building, how do we make sure that everyone feels like they have a person, like, again, that charismatic adult, and how do they feel that they, that that they have a community where they feel that no matter what, everyone sees them for who they are. Part of belonging also is not like just taking a square peg and trying to fit it in a circle or the other way around. It's saying like, I may be different and I'm also okay. And it's not trying to own fit. It's different. Fitting in is different than belonging. You've referred to that charismatic adult. And of course, when I hear char uh, charisma or charismatic, I think about that motivating speaker on stage or somebody who's inspiring, but I suppose it goes a little bit deeper than that with, with that charismatic adult in, in your definition. Is that correct? Deeper and also simpler. Like, yes, I don't mean like as charismatic, like the person has to be you know, a good speaker. It has to be a person who really makes almost a child feel charismatic. It's that, that's what I mean. I mean, I didn't make up that term. Julius Siegel coined it back in the day. Hmm. 
Robert Brooks has expanded on that. And, you know, I've actually talked with Robert Brooks that maybe it's not the best choice of words, but what I think that it really is implying is that this is this person who, when that child is in that presence, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel supported. And again, like how nice would that feel like every day going to work? If you felt that with your staff, how great would that be for the kids? If they knew that when they made an oops, like again, everybody makes an oops, that kids aren't going to be making fun of them or looking at them sideways, but that again, they're there to sort of pick them up and, and feel that sense that it's okay. And that these things happen, like kind of going back to that, that child that I said, I think, and again, it was back to, we have a good relationship. He knew I wasn't doing this to try to get him in trouble or to like make him feel small. But because we have that relationship, I thought that was also why he was also able to say sorry and to kind of move forward and not sort of fall apart. Yeah, it sounds like we're feeding off, the, the students are feeding off of that adult's energy. And that, that energy is contagious. It's positive, but not like you said, toxic positivity. This is like a realistic, you were realistic in your expectations of that child to say, yes, I do have to call your mom. This is not, you know, all smoke and mirrors. We're going to treat this in a way that helps you learn from it. And so there's not just this cover all the time, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. It is a balance. And I think that's why I was very, I think I wanted to put it out there. Like, I think you have to be careful because I think that when people feel like you just sort of sugarcoating things or dismissing things, uh, it doesn't feel genuine. I think there's a place for people to have feelings and to have feel things. And there's also a place for us to, to still feel that we're supported or see the opportunity in all the challenges that we face. We know a lot about support networks like this. And even in professional networks, we're hearing a lot more about mastermind groups. And you see this in like addiction recovery programs, that these are the kind of things that have been known for a long time to work. So it just makes sense to translate this over to our supportive kids. Right. You know, when we went out for dinner, we actually were joined by Dana Thomas, who really a big proponent and has started something international about basically staff supporting staff. And she does great work. And I also do that work in my school. I think that for a long time, you know, a school is obviously about the children. However, if the adults are not feeling good, the kids are not going to feel good. And also the adults should just feel good. Like, it, yes, it's important to be, care about the kids, but I also think it's important for us to take um, our time and be really thoughtful about how the adults are feeling in the building as well. Yeah. And I think that goes back to people like me's responsibility as a principal, as a school leader, to make sure that they're feeling supported they're, They have a network, a trusting system. And it's that old ideology of you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, make sure you're okay first. So you can then make sure the kid's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So in your work, you talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy, and I am such a big fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. So I got to ask you, can you tell us how the, like some of the main components in CBT work? In terms of cognitive behavioral therapy, I mean, if you just break down the, the, the title, so it's cognitive, it's, it's, you know, thoughts and it's behavior. So for example, I'll just use something like there's a lot of anxiety going on. I, I, I see that in my practice and in school. So a lot of kids who are anxious have certain kinds of thoughts that get in their way and behaviors that get in their way. So in terms of thoughts, they'll have like a lot of what ifs. And they'll often fall into what we call the problematic P's, which are they take things personally, they make them pervasive, they make them permanent. And so the cognitive 
part of cognitive behavioral therapy is helping them first identify those negative thoughts and then help them come up with ways to think about things that again, aren't Pollyanna and aren't toxic positivity, but are realistic and evidence-based that make them feel better. So that's the cognitive part. And then the behavioral part, and if we're just using an example like anxiety, is to do behaviors that are going to support that thinking. So often when kids are anxious, they want to avoid. So the behavior would be, even though you're feeling anxious, you are going to feel sometimes uncomfortable. And at the same time, you need to approach it. So actually today, I got an email this morning from a fifth grader's teacher saying that there's a girl that really very strong student who was very anxious and didn't and came very late to school today. And then I spoke to her mom and her mom was saying that she was really feeling anxious. She actually came to school. And then when she got to the school, she's like, I can't go in. And then the mother actually drove her back home. She actually did some breathing, which was good and came back to school. And then I spoke to her today and I really talked about her about the importance that I know she's feeling anxious and that a lot of kids are feeling anxious. And it's so important for her to come to school because if she doesn't go to school, it's just going to reinforce in her brain that school is this awful, terrible place. And the fact that she comes here every day is the best thing to do to show worry, to kind of get lost and that it's okay. And that worry tricks us and how to find those tricky, sticky thoughts and challenge them and then do the behavior that's going to be aligned with that thinking. That sounds like some of the simple yet difficult strategies that if we can get kids to master, they're going to be able to start to overcome those things. Right. But some simple things, like I said to her today, and I mean, I met with her maybe for 15, 20 minutes is like asking yourself questions like, what's the possibility? Is this a possibility or a probability? Sometimes what happens when we get anxious is we take something that's a possibility and we elevate it to the level of probability. If it's a possibility, we don't heed that. If it's a probability, we do. So for example, today I said to her, did you bring a winter coat, like a snow jacket and you know snow pants? No. It's possible it's a good snow, but it's not probable. So again, you live your life based on probability. So always asking that because the worry tricks you and makes you think that these things that are possibilities are probably gonna happen. Another really easy question kids can ask themselves is to say, again, what is the evidence? What is the evidence that the way I'm thinking about something is true? And how is that helpful? And then the last question that's a lot, it's based on Ethan Cross's work on self-distancing is to say to yourself, what would I say if a friend was going through this? So if I had a friend who was really feeling like uncomfortable about going to school, would I say to her, oh, I think you should stay home. It's going to be the best thing for you. Or would you say, you know what? You might feel a little bit uncomfortable in the morning. And once you get there, you're going to start to feel better. And then to sort of ask those questions to yourself, how you would say it to a friend. That's funny you say that because I was thinking about something I've often said to kids and my own children is, would you be this tough on a friend of yours? And it's sort of a much less clinical way as to how you described it. But they always say to me, no, of course I wouldn't. Well, then why would you be so hard on yourself? And so sometimes it's self-distance talking and things like that that seems to to make a difference. So that's, that's a really good perspective, I think, that makes it more tangible for kids to be able to 
to manage that with. And I noticed from, you know, again, some of the across this research, other people's research is that when they put people actually stick them in an MRI and they ask them questions about like, ask a question to yourself versus ask a question about a friend, the parts of the brain that lights up are different. So we wow. literally process this information in a different part of the brain when we frame this question in that way. And there's a reason that we are much more rational with our friends than with our, with ourselves. When we process it, the amygdala, you know, the emotional part of our brain lights up. Whereas when we talk about a friend, that part doesn't light up as much. It's like the difference between an objective clinical mindset versus that subjective, emotionally clouded, interfering way to manage it. It really distinguishes it. That's, that's amazing. Your bio says that you're an expert in conducting psychoeducational evaluations for children experiencing school-related difficulties, which seems kind of obvious at this point in the interview, but tell me what that involves. Have you seen an increase in requests too? I imagine- for evaluations. So I, I guess have an interesting sort of niche because I, I obviously as a psychologist that works in a school, I do a lot of evaluations as anyone who knows the school psychologist in the school. So I do those evals. And then I also do private evaluations where I do like a more intensive type of evaluation privately. And I also understand when I work privately, like what happens in the school. Sometimes I feel like as this person who works in a school, people on the outside privately won't understand what the demands are or what the rules are in a school. And the school people won't also understand what the rules are when you do this privately. But because I kind of do both things, I'm able to sort of see that lens. I I do think that there's been an uptick in evaluations. And, you know, I just read in the paper last week in the New York Times, they were saying that there's been a, like a 37% increase in kids having significant reading issues in the lower grades. And so I'm sure that a parents are going to see that and, you know, request an evaluation. And I think it's going to be sort of interesting because they can't all get services. 37% of the population can't you know, all get services. So I do think that people are noticing that because of COVID and what happened. And I think it depends on also the demographics and where people are living, it's more significant or not. Kids learning has been impacted by this. And I also, in addition to learning issues, what I'm seeing is about social relationships and attention and regulation and how to play and in my, my social skills group, maybe somebody would come into my office and they're like, why is she playing go fish with those children? But it's an essential skill. These kids, they don't know how to take turns. They don't know how to pick who's going to go first. These kids were playing rock, paper, scissor. And then this kid, instead of saying like rock, paper, scissor, he had a claw. I'm like, what's a claw? He's like, oh, that's the thing that overrides everything. I'm like, we can't do that. <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's just, understanding rules and following rules and then when things don't work or when kids win and how to be a good winner, how not to be a, uh, how not to be a sore loser. These are things that I think that the kids are needing a lot more direct instruction around because they just didn't have a lot of practice around those things. It's amazing. You say that because I can think about so many instances this year, you know, we're in the trenches, so we see it every day and we're seeing this, need to re-socialize kids because they were isolated. They were quarantined, mm -hmm. squirreled away just in a digital world and didn't have those more direct social interactions. So you're right. I think it's going to take 
a little while. I think they'll bounce back, but I think it's going to yes. take a little while and, some, and that supports that you're, you're talking about in the, in the work you've done. So uh, we've got some more cutouts for us, but I think it'll happen. You know, I think back to uh, the kids of Katrina, there's some, been some research on them and how some of them have showed that resilience and, you know, some of the remarkable stories there where they were, many of them were able to bounce back again, right. given the right supports. I mean, you know, we can't just freelance this. We really have to, we can structure this. You talked earlier about teaching kids things like resilience. And the fact that that's a teachable skill is so critical. It's not just something that's ingrained and you either have it, you don't. So I think that's a big help too. So you have trained hundreds of teachers, parents, and children and healthcare professionals during workshops and lectures. If they could, if any one of those groups or all of them could walk away with one idea from your talk, something they could continue with to help support children, what, what would you wish that would be? I think sometimes people are feeling very overwhelmed right now. I know that there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of feeling overwhelmed. And I know that Robert Brooks talks a lot about these. There are really micro moments, small gestures you can do to make a difference in, in, in a child's life. Greeting children warmly, noticing things, really smiling at kids, focusing again, like when kids are doing things right. We as human beings have a tendency to, to, to sort of be attracted to the negative. It, it's good evolutionarily. Our ancestors who didn't pay attention to, to the bad, they didn't survive, right? So we've carried on those genes. However, we should know our inclination is to to focus on, on the negative and really sort of retrain our brain to notice those, those small positive things that our kids are doing. So I think that the mindset is important and it has to be coupled with behavior. But I also am very cautious to try to just, again, put everything on the children. I think we need to see this as structural. We need to see it as community. We need to see it is all of us have to sort of work towards this. It's not just the child who has to become resilient. We have to sort of develop structures and, and place so that we as the grownups are also in a place where we can do it and then we can help the youngsters do it as well. Yeah, you dissected that really well. I was thinking about the research on teacher greeting at the door, that that can lower, it, just that one thing can significantly okay. lower behavioral issues because they're getting positive attention and feedback. And feedback's another big piece of that, isn't it? Yes. And there's, there's again, there's a lot of research on what is effective feedback, having high expectations and also at the same time, giving that support, those two things coupled together is like the best kind of feedback that you can get. So again, it's not like kind of watering things down. It's like we have high expectations and I'm here to, to, to get you there. I don't know if you notice, I am pretty deliberate of the word and versus, but a lot of times people will say something, we should have high expectations, but we should also be supportive. If you ask me that maybe is something that people can take away is the power of the word and instead of saying, but, because when we say, but we basically just sort of erase what we said in front of it. And instead, if we can simply say the word and, it sort of models that we can have these two competing ideas and we can still have these two ideas in our head and that's also okay. So that's a small little thing that people can do to can make a whopping change. I'm thinking about like, I could do an activity or an exercise with my teachers who could then go do that with the kids, Re replace mm -hmm. the word but in every part of this, uh, this paragraph within and doesn't that make it more uh, encouraging and it reminds me of what you said earlier about the adult who is that charismatic 
mentor or adult that is giving the kid positive energy and support, but also challenging them to go higher, slightly out of their comfort zone, right? Not like just sitting there in stasis, like not moving, because that's not going to help them either. Right. Right. And I think that that's the challenge. I think sometimes teachers feel like I need to do this SEL and I also need to teach the math lesson. Yes, you do need to do both. Like, and how can you get that done? And I think that honestly, these SEL lessons are best incorporated, like when they're seamlessly in the lesson, when Mm. you use literature, when you use math to problem solve, when you use stories to talk about different people's perspectives, that's like the most real way of, of, of teaching these skills. Yes, it's nice. I sometimes go into classes and I teach a lesson on self-control or growth mindset or friendship. However, I think when you can make it authentic and then I feel like then it's also not sacrificing the lesson time. That concept about, you know, you hit on a few great points there, all packed into one uh, sentence. One of the things I wanted to tune into was the idea of story. So story is really powerful and you, mm-hmm. and teachers don't always realize this, but by nature of what they've been doing, almost every certainly the quality teachers of which there are most uh, have the amazing ability to tell stories. And what's powerful about that is they can turn that into an inspiring or a a positive or productive direction for kids. Because when we're telling a story and it's a compelling one, kids' brains, we've seen this in studies too in MRIs, are mirroring Mm -hmm. that of the storyteller, which means they're actually living vicariously through that story. It's really strong, influential uh, ways to get through to kids. Right. And again, when I, I often give, you know, some self uh, disclosure about my own life and um, not just because I just want to talk about myself, but I, I do feel like when I share stories, like they remember it. Like I, I have like a group that I'm working with kids um, that a lot of times, again, they can make mistakes and sometimes they are so defensive and they will say, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And I talk about like, you know, we all have been naughty and how it's important to fess up. And so I remember I was telling them a story that when I was little, I cut my sister's hair and they remember that story. <laughs> and, and because it's interesting, I actually went to Colorado recently and my sister who I cut her hair is now grown with two actually youngest children. And my son went to visit and he got there before. And my sister decided to have a little payback for me and cut my son's hair <laughs> into a mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Payback. <laughs> yes. And w- the kids remember it. I'm like, I have more information about that story. So yes, they definitely remember. And I think like years later, though, though, I think like they, they remember those stories. And I think we as, you know, again, as, as somebody who always wants to talk about content and cover material, yes, we want to cover things, but then we have to sort of step back and say, okay, what's the purpose of this? Do we want them to really remember this or we just want to cover the content? Yeah. And, and they do retain more through story than they yeah. do through just strictly facts, right. don't they? And I love the way you said that you share your own personal uh, challenges or things that you overcame. I think kids need to hear more from adults about the things that we either overcame or are still struggling with being our authentic selves, because then they, they can relate to that and say, oh, and yet you've been able to do that and see that there's a possibility, a way out from adults that they learn to trust. Yeah. So actually I 
have a bulletin board now outside my thing, which is our fail wall, which is that we all write something where we failed, which stands for our first attempt in learning. Um, and we say something where we had a mistake and how we learned from it. And they contribute. I've asked all the adults in my building to contribute. So they come by and they can see what, you know, Mrs. Himes, the principal, what her fail was. And then years past when I've done that, we've also reached out to famous people. And then we put their fails on. In the past, like Michelle Obama got back to us and uh, Bill wow. Gates got get a big kick out of it. And right before the Super Bowl, one of my the boys in my group wanted to reach out to the quarterback from one of the, the famous teams. We haven't heard back from him, but hopefully we will. And they keep asking me, did he write back? Did he write back? But the point is, yeah, if he did, if he didn't, it doesn't matter. But it's the idea of that they understand what the concept is, that we all have mistakes. It's And, and by putting them out there onto the bulletin board, what we're showing is that no one's alone. Everyone does it, and it makes some of the shame go away. Mm, that's a powerful way to get kids to feel both better about themselves and that we're they're not any different, that, that they can, right. yeah, they can persevere based on your, your resilience work. And- is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I had or something you just want to add? I think it is going to be before the book launch that people tune in. I think it's going to be interesting to hear a little bit more detail about this latest book and to hear some of the other great people that I have on there. And uh, again, the reason why I'm doing this is that I do feel like this is a skill. And I think that there has been sort of a little bit of a gap in the literature about helping kids really gain the skill in a really concrete, accessible manner. I guess, you know, everybody has a superpower strength. I guess my big strength is I love taking research and trying to make it in a way that is more accessible for people. And that's my hope in talking to you today and in doing this work. Yeah, that's where your work is unique and you can offer to everybody. I'm going to attach the link to that launch to the show notes and people can click right on that and, and be ready yes. for it. So and let them I'm in their pajamas. The camera's going to be on me and the, the presenters, but not on them. So they can, it's very casual. They can have their Zoom outfit on. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to have an opportunity to be in the chat, but no one, no cameras on them, no mic on them. So perfect. It's very casual. So it's a nice, safe place for them to be and also get great information. And where yeah. can people find you, like on socials? I have a website. It's my name. It's drbaruchfeldman.com. You call me Dr. Feldman. I go by Karen Feldman, Karen Baruch Feldman. It doesn't really matter. But my website is drbaruchfeldman.com. That's a really great place to find lots of information about me. I also am on Twitter and with my name and on Facebook with my name. And also if people want, they can always send me an email. They can get the email through the website or it's drkaren feldman at msn.com and i will put links to those as well on there karen thanks so much for spending this time with me and okay. little sidebars funny story we had a problem at the beginning but they'll never know it they just got a lot of great information <laughs> out of this so i okay. really appreciate you taking the time with my audience i know they're gonna love it okay good all right thank you thanks, thanks for so much I hope you enjoyed this episode on one of the greats about grit and resilience. Stay tuned for another great episode next Sunday.